We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning at the end of the sermon. So we've got elements at a table on the back side over here and on the back side uh, on this side as well. We're not going to come by and pass those out later in the service. So if you'd like to participate in the Lord's Supper with us, you can get up at some point and grab those so that you're ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. Our passage is Hebrews chapter 4. We're reading through the New Testament. We're in the book of Hebrews. This morning we're going to talk about just a couple of verses from Hebrews 4, verse 14, 15, and 16. And I'd like us to start with a big picture, 30,000 foot view of the book of Hebrews. I shared this with you last Sunday. I shared it with you Wednesday, but I'm going to bring it up one more time again this morning just so you understand the nature of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has a dual purpose, and these two dueling purposes fit together in one purpose. Negatively, the book of Hebrews is written to warn Christians about the danger of falling away. Positively, the book of Hebrews is written to encourage Christians to continue trusting in Jesus and to continue following after Jesus. As Christians, we need both sides of this equation. We need to hear the warning, the warnings in the book of Hebrews that say, don't stop following Jesus. If you turn away from following Jesus, there is a dreadful expectation of judgment. And we need to hear the positive encouragement, even if you suffer, Hebrews says, Keep following after Jesus. Keep believing the truth about Jesus. If you want to use a modern idiom, you could say the book of Hebrews is com- uh, sort of a combination of carrots and sticks. You've heard that metaphor. How do, you, how do you move an animal where you can use a stick and you can beat the animal or you can use a carrot to motivate the animal? And the book of Hebrews has both of those. The warning passages serve as sticks that prod us along and encourage us, don't stop following. And then the encouragement passages hold out in front of us hope, the truth about who Jesus is, the glory of who Jesus is, so that we continue to trust in Him and we continue to follow Him. Now, Hebrews, to that end, has a lot to say about Jesus. In fact, the whole book is really about Jesus from beginning to end. Hebrews argues for the supremacy of Jesus, the first placeness of Jesus, noting that Jesus is greater than the angels. That's Hebrews 1 and 2. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is the Son He is not an angel. He's greater than the angels. Hebrews argues for the supremacy of Jesus, noting that he's greater than Moses. This is Hebrews 3. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. Hebrews argues that Jesus is greater than Joshua. This is Hebrews chapter 4. Joshua brought the people into the promised land, but he did not give them a lasting rest. They had a political rest, a military rest from their enemies, but it wasn't a true rest. And Jesus Jesus is the one who brings his people to a true point of rest. Jesus is greater than Aaron. He's a greater high priest than Aaron was. We're going to talk about that this morning. That's chapter 5. Chapter 7, Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. We don't have time to unpack the mysteries of Melchizedek, but Hebrews is telling you Jesus is greater than all of these people from the Old Testament. And the result of that is a conclusion that Jesus is the founder of a new 
and a better covenant. Before we get to the Lord's Supper, I'll just remind you that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the establishment, the inauguration of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. Hebrews is pointing us in that direction. Our passage, chapter 4, verse 14, 15, 16, has an encouragement for us in light of who Jesus is. So here's the big idea. Believers, Christians, followers of Jesus can hold fast to our confession. That's our confession of faith in Jesus. We can hold fast to our confession of faith in Jesus. We can draw near to the throne of grace. And Hebrews 4 says we can draw near, not trembling, but with confidence. We can hold on to our confession of faith. We can draw near to God's throne of grace with confidence because Jesus is our great high priest. So that's the big idea. Look with me, if you would, at Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Scripture says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Hebrews. We thank you for this book that helps us make sense of the Old Testament, this book that shows us the supremacy of Jesus. As we think about Jesus, our great high priest this morning, help us to be people who hold fast to our confession of faith. Help us to be people who draw near to your throne with confidence and assurance and hope because of who Jesus is and what He's done on our behalf. Lord, be honored this morning in the preaching of Your Word, in the reading of Your Word, and certainly in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My family moved to Odessa in 2014, the spring of 2014. My first official day of work here at Emmanuel Baptist Church was April Fool's Day, 2014, and the joke's been on you ever since then. One of the very first things that we had to do in 2014 is we had an old copier, and it was time to sign a new lease on a new copier. And so we called Total Office Solution, and they said, this is what we have. We do four-year leases. We said, great. It was one of the first administrative things that we had to take care of after I moved here. So we did that in 2014, four-year lease. We did it in 2018 another two-year lease. We tried to do it in the spring of this year, 2022, but our new copier was on a boat somewhere and there was no one to unload it, and we finally got it. We finally have our brand new Xerox copier. I'm going to show you a picture of it in case you haven't been on a tour of the office lately. In the words of Cousin Eddie Clark, she's a beaut. 
She's a wonderful machine. She makes copies. She can punch holes. She can staple things. We run financial statements on it. We run children's coloring pages on it. We print your bulletins on it. All sorts of things we do with this copy machine. So I just wanted you to see that this morning. That's our copy machine, brand new copy machine. Now, something else I want to show you this morning. Keep our copy machine just lodged in your head for a minute. I'm going to show you this in real life and up on the screen since you can't see it. A couple of years ago, a family in our church, they might be my favorite church members, gave me this as a gift. This is an ESV Bible, English Standard Version. It's printed by Crossway. It has a goatskin cover. This is not like the cheap plastic leather, pleather stuff they mash together and it breaks and it, you know, turns into junk after you open it a whole lot. It's a, a real cover. And it's a beautiful Bible. It's an heirloom Bible. It's a very, very, very expensive Bible. And this couple gave this to me as a gift. And I almost never preach out of it because I'm afraid to drop it or tear it. It's so valuable. It's so expensive. I really, if I'm honest with you, I only use it on special occasions. And I only use it if I'm speaking in a place where I know that I'm going to use a podium or a pulpit and I can set it down and I don't have to hold it and I don't have to handle it. I don't want the pages to be discolored by the oil on my fingers and I don't want the pages to get crimped up. And I, It's very valuable to me and I love this Bible. Now, let's talk about Xerox machines and heirloom Bibles. What if I wanted to give you a gift, a really nice gift, maybe a Bible, except I don't love you as much as these people love me, and I don't want to spend this much money on you, but what if I took this Bible, this very expensive Bible, and I went back into the office and very, very carefully opened it, and page by page laid it down on the copy machine and began to copy this Bible, this very expensive Bible for you. Now, the pages here are very thin. The pages we print on our copy machine are normal paper, so the stack would be about up to your knees. And you would have a copy of my heirloom Bible, and I gave you that stack of copies as a gift. Wouldn't that be special to you? You don't know what to say, do you? Because you're in church, and I'm asking you what you would do with a stack of copies that is the Bible, right? It's the Word of God, photocopied. You're looking at my Bible, and you say, well, I'd rather have that than a big stack of papers, I don't think I'm supposed to say that I would just get rid of those pages. It's the Bible. I'm not sure what I would do with it. But you understand, as I describe that scenario to you, the difference between a copy and the real thing. And there is a difference, right? I mean, if you lived in certain parts of the world and you had no access to the Scriptures, you would be very thankful for a stack of pages that was a photocopy of God's Word. You would cling to it. You would love it. You would value it. But you live in the United States of America. We have copies of the Scriptures underneath every chair. You probably carried a copy of the Scriptures in with you. You might have an expensive heirloom Bible at home. 
And in that scenario, you have what we might call the real thing, and you wouldn't value the copy, even though it's true, even though it's accurate, quite as much. That brings me to the first answer of the question that we're going to wrestle with this morning. The question that we're wrestling with in Hebrews chapter 4 is this question. How do we find gospel encouragement in the fact, in the truth, that Jesus is our great high priest? Here's the first answer. Jesus passed through the heavens. Jesus passed through the heavens. Let me try to explain to you what this has to do with the real thing, with an original and with a copy. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. If that was the only thing that the book of Hebrews had to say about the heavens, you could come up with all sorts of fanciful, fantastic ideas about what that verse means. But it's not the only thing that the book of Hebrews has to say about the heavenly places. If you keep reading in the book of Hebrews, beyond chapter 4, you will eventually get to points in the book where the author of Hebrews says this, when Moses made the tabernacle, and by implication, when David and Solomon built the temple, they were making a copy of the real thing in heaven. What they built on earth wasn't the real thing. Now, it was real. There was a real tent. You could touch it. You could see it. You could smell it. There was a real temple. It was really there. But they weren't the real thing. They were copies of the very presence of God that Moses and David and Solomon were privy to. They were making not an original, but a copy. And by extension, the book of Hebrews says the sacrifices that took place at that tabernacle and the temple, they were real sacrifices. They were real animals. The blood was really shed. It was really violent. It was really a reminder of sin. But they were copies. They weren't the real thing. The real thing was to come. The real thing took place when the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our great high priest offered a sacrifice, not of the blood of bulls and goats, but of his own blood. And that sacrifice was accepted, the book of Hebrews says, in the heavenly places. What does it mean that Jesus passed through the heavens? It's not talking about a trip. It's not talking about a vacation. It's not talking just about physical location. It's talking about the very real, not the copy, the very real sacrifice that the Lord Jesus offered when He died on the cross. It wasn't just a copy. It was the real thing. And when you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great high priest, passed through the heavens and offered this sacrifice to God in the heavenly places, it gives you hope that what happened 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem on a Roman cross was actually something that in a mysterious way was accepted in the heavenly places. And it was more real, the sacrifice of Jesus was more real than any animal sacrifice that was ever offered in the Old Testament. They were just copies. Jesus offered the real thing. 
How do we find gospel encouragement in the fact that Jesus is our great high priest? Here's answer number two. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. This is verse 14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, comma, the Son of God. Jesus, who is the Son of God. We won't belabor this much. This is an emphasis in Hebrews 1 and 2. We talked about this last Sunday, and we talked about it again on Wednesday. When the Bible describes Jesus as the Son of God, it's not saying that He's somehow less than God. It's saying that He is the same kind as God. He is truly God. And this is really good news for you, that Jesus is the Son of God and that He came to offer a sacrifice. I want you to think about the last time you had to ask somebody for forgiveness. The last time you had to go to someone, maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a child, maybe a friend, a boss, an employee, somebody, and you had to say to them, I'm sorry for what I did, and I'm asking you to forgive me. When you do that to another person, there's always a little bit of tension for you, isn't there? There's always a little bit of tension in the fact that you don't know how the other person is going to respond, do you? They might hug your neck and kiss you on the cheek and say, I love you, it's all forgiven, let's move on. Or they might cross their arms and bow up and be defiant and not accept your apology, and you don't have any control over that. And there's some uncertainty. When you go to ask somebody for forgiveness, you're not certain how it's going to go until it goes one way or the other. Many people feel that way when they come to God for forgiveness. They say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I've done it. You don't know how persistently I've done it. There is no way that he will accept this apology. There is no way that he will forgive me. I, I just can't believe it. But Hebrews is telling you, you can believe it. Because the one who came to offer himself for you is not just an angel, it's not just Moses, it's not just Joshua, it's not even Melchizedek. It's Jesus, the Son of God. What the Bible tells us is that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God in eternity past, came up with a plan to save a people. And in the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son. The Son gladly, joyfully went to do what the Father had sent Him to do. And He offered His life as a sacrifice. And then as He died, He said, it's finished, it's done, it's paid. And the Father raised the Son from the dead three days later, showing to the world that this sacrifice had been accepted. When you come to God asking Him to forgive you, you come not on your own merits, but on the merits of His Son. On the merits of a plan that was hatched in eternity past and fulfilled in the fullness of time. And you can have confidence that the Father will forgive you, not because you're just so lovable and forgivable, but because His own Son died for you. This is why John is so confident in 1 John 1.9 when he says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we do this, He will do that. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to be in question. You don't have to say, Will He really forgive me? Yes, He will because He's faithful and just and His Son has paid the penalty 
for your sins. How do we find gospel encouragement in the fact that Jesus is our great high priest? Answer number three, Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. With our weakness. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. This was a major emphasis of what we talked about Wednesday night, and I will not rehash the entirety of that sermon. I will simply say that when you get the idea in your head that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Creator, He is the Sustainer, He is God, you may begin to think someone like that surely could never relate to someone like me. He's too different. He's too distant. There's too much of a gulf between us. But the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. God became man without ceasing to be God. Hebrews 2, 17 He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The Son of God was not just walking around earth in a human costume pretending to be human. He truly became human. And we talked about this Wednesday, the early church councils wrestling with this truth of who Jesus is and fighting off false teaching, fighting heresy. And we landed with the Council of Chalcedon 451 where they said, Jesus, the Son of God, is truly God and truly man. He can relate. He does understand weakness. He does understand what it means to be tired to be hungry, to be hurt, to be lonely, to be embarrassed. He understands our weaknesses. How do we find gospel encouragement in the fact that Jesus is our great high priest? Truth four and five. Answer four and five. Jesus has been tempted in every way, and Jesus never sinned. He's been tempted in every way, and he never sinned. Verse 15. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been tempted as we are in every respect, yet he is without sin. Jesus understands temptation and obedience better than we do. A few weeks ago, I told you about a father-son team that competed in Ironman triathlons, the Hoyt family, Team Hoyt, father and son. The son had a muscle illness, and the father would uh, drag his son, push his son, carry his son through these competitions. It's an amazing story. And as you think about endurance competitions, as you think about a triathlon or an Ironman competition, you get some sense of what the book of Hebrews is saying here when it talks about Jesus being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. If you compete in an Ironman triathlon, the first thing that you do is swim, and it's about two miles of swimming, 2.4 miles of swimming. Then you ride a bike for 112 miles. Then you run a marathon. Now I'm looking around the room at most of us. 
2.4 miles of swimming. Think you can make it? You don't get a floaty. Team Hoyt's not going to pull you through. If you get in the water and you don't even make it all the way through the swim, then you have no idea what it's like to ride a bike for 112 miles after swimming for 2.4 miles. You don't know because you quit before you got there. Let's say you finish the swim. You float across the finish line there. You get out, you get on the bike. And let's say you ride 111 miles on a bike. And then your legs cramp up, they lock up, and you just sort of fall over on the side of the road. Well, if that's you, you don't know what it's like to swim 2.4 miles, ride a bike for 112 miles, and then run a marathon because you quit. You didn't make it. You don't know what it's like to make it all the way to the end. Only the people who finish the race, who complete the course, understand, truly understand, truly know what it's like to finish the course. They can tell you about it. They can describe it to you. But you don't know unless you actually finish. Listen, in the race of obedience to the law of God, there's only one person who has finished. It's not me and it's not you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who ran his race, who ran the course of life, who ran this race of obedience to the law of God and made it all the way to the end without ever sinning in anything that he did, anything that he said, anything that he thought, anything that he felt. He is the only one. He was tempted in every way like you and me. He was tempted to disobey every one of the Ten Commandments. Commandment 1 and 2, worship other gods, worship idols. He was tempted in that respect. Commandment 3, use God's name with respect, not for your own agenda. He was tempted to use God's name for his own agenda. Commandment 4, keep the Sabbath. He was tempted to break the Sabbath. Commandment 5, honor father and mother. He faced this temptation throughout his life when he was a boy in Jerusalem all the way through his dying moments on the cross. Commandment 6, do not murder or, as Jesus explains, be unjustly angry. Commandment 7, do not commit adultery or lust. He was tempted in every way. Commandment 8, don't be dishonest. Commandment 9, uh, commandment 8, don't steal. Commandment 9, don't be dishonest. Commandment 10, don't covet. He was tempted in all of these ways, yet he's without sin. Righteous. That means two things for us, two truths of gospel encouragement. Number one, it means that Jesus knows how temptation and obedience work. He understands it better than you do, and he under, understands it better than your pastor. And the book of Hebrews says, he can help you in a time of need. He will help his people to be obedient if they look to him for help. The second thing it means is this. Jesus finished his race. The wages of sin is death. He had no sin of his own for which to die. And so, as the great high priest, he didn't offer the sacrifice of bulls or goats or lambs. He offered himself a sinless, spotless, righteous sacrifice. This is what the Bible describes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. When it says, God made him, Jesus, 
who knew no sin, he'd never sinned. He made him to be sin for us, people who have sinned. Why? So that in Jesus, we sinners might become the righteousness of God. Because all of these things are true about Jesus, the great high priest. Look at what the book of Hebrews says. Chapter 4, verse 11. Excuse me, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, this is our big idea, let us hold fast our confession. And he uses that phrase again at the end in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done as our great high priest, we are called to hold fast to our faith, our confession of faith, and we are called to draw near to the throne of grace. Now, my hunch is, even as we work through the logic of Hebrews chapter 4, my hunch is that there are still some of you wrestling with the question, will He be gracious and merciful and will He help me? Because I know my own sin. I know the depths of it. I know the habit of it. I know the repetitiveness of it. I know the stubbornness of it, the persistence of it. Will He be gracious and merciful and will He help me? That's a question that you wrestle with. I would refer you to the wisdom of the great Puritan Richard Sibbs who said this, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in the great high priest then there is sin in you. That may be hard for you to believe, but the book of Hebrews calls God's people to look at spiritual things with the eyes of faith and to believe things that we can't necessarily see or work out on our own. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. When we hold fast to our confession and we draw near to the throne of grace, when we confess our sin and we're confident that God will justly and faithfully forgive it, our confidence has nothing to do with us. It doesn't have to do with our loveliness. It doesn't have anything to do with our earnestness. It doesn't have anything to do with our beauty or our talents or our money or the church that we attend or the family that we're born into or any of those things. Our confidence is firmly rooted in the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great high priest. Our confidence is rooted in who He is and what He accomplished for us when He died as a sacrifice. All of that is the heart of the Lord's Supper. And this is the last point on your bulletin, on your outline. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for Christians, believers, to hold fast to their confession and to draw near to the throne of grace. We celebrate two ordinances as a church. One is baptism, and you only get baptized, truly baptized, once. The other is the Lord's Supper, and we, we observe it, we celebrate it regularly, repeatedly, over and over and over again. As long as we walk this earth, we gather together with the people of God. We hold fast to the truth that we are sinners, but that Jesus is a great Savior. And that he died as the great high priest that we might be forgiven. 
We celebrate it to draw near to the throne of grace, to remind ourselves of the body of Christ that was broken for our sins and the blood of Christ that was shed to pay for our sins. So this morning, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you have obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. I'm going to give you just a minute, just a minute or two to pray, to think, to confess sin, yes, but also to hold fast to your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to draw near to the throne of grace trusting that Jesus is merciful and gracious and that He helps His people in their hour of need. So you take a moment to pray and prepare your heart, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.